Welcome to the second season of the Inclusive Food Systems podcast by Belong. This season explores the role played by indigenous communities in building food security and climate resilience. In India, indigenous or tribal people are amongst the most nutritionally deprived social groups. At the same time, indigenous knowledge systems and food cultivation practices are adapted to local environment conditions and are diverse and therefore more climate resilient. How do we then incorporate this traditional knowledge into mainstream agriculture and nutrition programs while foregrounding the health and well-being of indigenous peoples? I'm your host Amia and in this season we'll dive into pastoralism, fishing and farming to uncover the ways in which indigenous peoples hold the key to a sustainable and food secure future. Welcome to the first episode in season 2 of Inclusive Food Systems. Our guest today is Sibaprata Choudhury from Living Farms Odisha. and we will be talking about tribal farming practices in odisha which ensure crop diversity soil health and natural regeneration of forest cover in odisha these cultivation methods have even had a tangible impact on the environment villages that practice this method experience cooler temperatures because of lower emissions of greenhouse gases such as methane Sibaprata is the CEO of Living Farms Odisha, an organization that works with the community to protect indigenous culture, forest, land, agriculture, food and life practices. Under the leadership of the late Devjit Sarangi, Living Farms initiated impactful interventions including community kitchen gardens, preservation of indigenous seed varieties and uncultivated forest foods. In today's episode, Sibaprata talks about the work at Living Farms as we discuss the potential of indigenous farming methods in the face of increasingly commercialized quote-unquote modern farming practices. Thank you for joining us today, Sibaprata, to talk about sustainability and indigenous food and farming. Living Farms has been carrying out pioneering work on indigenous food systems. Can you tell us about the organization's work with the Adivasi Kond community in Odisha? What are the key focus areas in terms of food security, sustainability and indigenous people's rights? Thank you very much Amia. I am glad to be sharing you about the journey of Living Farms. which began in 2008 actually living farm was founded by mr devjit sarangi in 2008 following his long years of association with tribal communities and adivasis throughout odisha and eastern india unfortunately because of covid he passed away last year but we at living farm trying to carry on his work basically his premise was having worked with various tribal communities throughout the state and other states he had understood that the key to sustainability and food security lies in conserving and maintaining the way of life that the vasis follow which is more in sync with nature and the surroundings so that's what we have been promoting at living farms and we work with the local communities and try to create a dialogue among the community both the youth the women and the elders on the existing scenario existing situations 
about their livelihoods, what are the challenges they are facing and how best they can lead their lives so that it's close to nature and they are able to address the livelihood issues and food security issues within themselves. So that has been our approach. We work primarily in Kedah, Damal, Gandhi, Kurapur districts. But also our work also relates to collaborating with the government mainstream institutions so that they also understand and appreciate the way of tribal livelihoods and approach to farming and life. So in Nutsal, that is our, our work and have been working for the past 14-15 years in close association with the basically their way of local institutions which is called Kutum. That is the primary approach and platform which is used to generate all these dialogue among the local communities. Can you tell us more about the Adivasi Kohn's way of life, which is inherently ecologically conscious and interwoven with their natural environment? And is there a sort of generational shift within these communities, with younger generations migrating to cities or adopting quote-unquote modern lifestyles? Yeah, it's a very interesting question and particularly when I first or any outsider comes to Raigada or the where the cones are inhabiting, we see forest, trees, water and nature. But when I interacted more with the Kond Adivasi, they take everything as a whole. The forest, trees, the microorganisms, flora, fauna, everything as a whole. And they consider themselves as an extension to the nature. For example, we I would see the nearby hill as a resource for trees and natural resources, minerals or water. But they have each and every hill surrounding their habitation has a name and a history around it. And the, on the, they have a strong association with their surroundings. Each and every aspect of their life is in real, in sync with the nature and the current existing like climatic factors or the cycle of life. So that is how their life is interwoven. So, so they are very conscious in whatever farming or agricultural activities or even when they go to forest, they are very conscious that it's not a too extractive and it's they always have everything for not only for themselves but also for the flora fauna for all the microorganisms living there so that is it's very difficult to put in words or to describe as a non adivasi the con the way of life but whatever i have understood i have tried to reflect here I guess it will take a lifetime for me to understand fully what the Kondadivasis mean and how much they live in sync with nature. And particularly with the advent of modernization and scientific approaches and so-called modern lifestyle. So all these way of life are at risk because the younger generation, one, they are going out in search of employment and to earn money. And also the youth and girls, they are also going out for study to, to the residential schools, which oftentimes they do not reflect 
and completely understand the privacy way of life. So there is often a generational shift and some kind of questioning going on in the mind of youths because whenever they go out, they are exposed to a different world which is more extractive, which is more attuned to only monetary benefits or gains. So those uh, approaches and ways of life are totally different than what the Pondadivasis believe in. Not only they are always in sync with nature, but they also have a communitarian approach to life, whereby all the members of the Kutum, they sit together and they plan together and when whatever harvest comes, it is shared among all the members of the community so that uh, they take care of any individual or family who is not able to produce that is needed for their sustenance. So the complete approach is towards joint ownership and joint living, which often defies the common or the urban way of understanding. We, in this modern world, so when there is a to become modern and adopt more remunerative or more scientific approaches, so that there is where there lies the conflict that younger generation faces. But still then we are trying to bridge that gap by creating scope for dialogue among the youth and also the elderly members who have so much of knowledge and understanding of how to conserve nature and maintain their way of life. Now to just bring some perspective into the issue. Could you elaborate on some of the barriers faced by Adivasi communities in accessing services in agriculture, food, and how has the COVID-19 pandemic sort of worsened some of these challenges for Adivasi communities? Yeah, so very interesting point that you have raised here. Actually, when I have interacted with the owned communities, their way of farming is totally different and totally like self-sustained way of farming. So, for instance, they do not depend on external seeds or seeds from the market. They practically do not use any kind of chemical inputs, fertilizers or pesticides in their farming. So mostly for farming sake, they are self-dependent or self-reliant, I would say. So unless in those villages which are more closer to the market or closer to the block office, the other villages, they are totally are self-reliant in terms of farming, which in a sense, I would say is a more sustainable and better approach that takes care of the soil environment and dependency factors. And their agriculture is a lot of varied and it's very diverse and they take up multiple types of crops, etc. And also for the lot of produce, they also depend on forest. With regard to food availability, basically nowadays the PDS distribution system is prevalent everywhere and it's available in all the villages, at least in most of the villages. I have never come across any village where PDS distribution was not available. But the thing is, it's a distribution kind of model. The PDS system, it's a distribution model through which only rice or wheat is available. Only for a couple of months during the COVID last year, the PDS distribution through the PDS system, ragi was distributed in these villages. But for most of the part, it's mostly rice based. 
and uh, here on the adivasis they have like very much preference to use uh, ragi as one of the components of their daily diet every day and every meal they will have a ragi gruel which is part of their diet which is a very wholesome and very nutritive food uh, component but that is not available through the normal pds solution so this in turn we the third point that you mentioned about nutrition in the tribal communities in the adivasi communities their nutrition is very much varied and their food intake is so much of a variety they not only grow different kinds of food products but also they make it a point to consume vegetables and other nutritive foods such as we take the uh, this uh, monsoon season now they get lot of uh, different varieties of mushroom from the forest which becomes a part of their diet and uh, during this season also they get lot of different varieties of from the forest which has a very much not only nutritive value but also medicinal value depending on the season they get different varieties of greens from the surrounding plots so that's how nutrition aspects are also covered in their daily diet but for a, in many of the villages what we have observed because of the remoteness of the villages sometimes the mainstream icds services may not be available as expected but they have their uh, traditional systems how to manage exigencies the other point that you mentioned about the covid 19 here there are two aspects to it one is during covid lockdown in 2020 when that happened many of the youths who had gone out to work they came back to their own villages but in the villages they made it a point to help each other and not be affected by food shortages because their requirement as their food requirement and the total requirement is basically they try to be self reliant and grow their all their own food so that was the situation though the youth i mean the people there faced challenges in earning gas income because a lot of work got stalled and there was restriction in travel and all those things but ultimately those people who were in the villages they tried to help each other and tied to the situations thank you for laying out the foundation for the rest of our conversation today I want to spend some time discussing sustainable solutions from Adivasi communities. Firstly, I'd like to discuss farming and cultivation and this is something that we have briefly touched upon at the beginning of the conversation. Traditional Adivasi methods of farming such as shifting cultivation or donga chhas and mixed crop farming are primarily for subsistence purposes. These methods allow for crop diversity, better soil health due to adequate fallow periods, and regeneration of forest cover. So, what are some of these cultivation methods, and how are they more sustainable? What are the imminent threats to these methods, from say monoculture plantations to Adivasis being forced into growing cash crops? the point you mentioned about dongar chas so that that is a very unique way of farming that i have observed though they practice and burn but i think there is a science behind it it's not a totally like destructive approach that we see from outside if we see from outside but the dongar chas it's a very scientific approach and they go through so many different varieties of crops in the dongar 
every time i rough estimate would be there would be around 15 to 20 varieties of crops in a single plot and the best part of it is whenever they start the dongar farming it's just before the first rain comes in the process starts and they start growing various kinds of millets then pulses then vegetables tubers spices so many and different types even in the millets there will be four or five varieties in the pulses also two three types of pulses so that's the beauty of the approach and the coverage crop cover remains for nearly 8 to 9 months in the dongar so that at different points of time they will be harvesting one or the other produce so that's how the dongar cultivation though it may seem subsistence from the outside they may not be earning lot from the dongar farming but it maintains their lifestyle and they are able to get a nutritive value from a small piece of land here the two three aspects of dongar farming which needs to be highlighted is there is always mixed cropping and they practice very minimal tilling tillage so that the soil cover is minimally disturbed the third point is there is always mulching which protects the soil and minimizes soil erosion and there is always a component of rotation if they have grown two three years in a single plot then they will leave it for fallow for another 2 uh, 3 years and nowadays the number of years of fallow has come down but still then they make it a point that they give adequate resting time to the soil and to the plot so that it retains and regenerates its nutritive so that's how the dongar cultivation is being practiced by the tribals for so many years and it has help them to tide over the various climatic conditions and the insecurities of course nowadays because of advent of the market forces many villages have been become susceptible to cash crops such as cotton or, and even in many places people have shifted to eucalyptus but not on the dongas these are grown in the lower lands so it may be giving uh, monetary returns to them but in the long run it we have seen many places they have become indebted and indebted and it has imbalanced their life so that's how even though dongachas is less like remunerative in financial terms it is much more environmentally sustainable and climate resilient i would say so that's how these practices need to be studied and replicated more if we want to conserve nature and work with the bare minimum and looking at the local context as such another focus area for living farms has also been documenting and conserving indigenous forest foods so what is the role of these foods in adivasi households and what are the imminent threats to their access to forest foods whether that's deforestation or migration to cities or even forced eviction from forest land and why have we failed to acknowledge the significance of these kind of forest foods in conversations on sustainable forest models basically various kinds of food and different items that the forests provide so during the monsoon it is more evident all through the year they get some or the other products but during the monsoons it is more evident since they get more than 15 to 20 varieties of mushrooms they collect different kinds of mushrooms during the monsoons which forms part of their daily diet 
and also they collect various kinds of greens leafy vegetables which forms part of their diet the third point that they get from the foresters tubers there are so many different varieties of tubers we have documented around 20 to 25 different varieties of tubers that are available and each tuber has its own significance its value in the tribal lifestyle which has its medicinal property it has its own way of preparation so these are form a part of their culture and apart from these they also get different types of fruits seasonal fruits depending on the season in the summer season they and get mangoes jackfruit and different berries from the forest also apart from that there also number of medicinal products that are also collected 2015 16 we had conducted a study in different geographies in odisha there we have documented that in each foray into the forest they get about 4 to 5 kg of different kinds of food and edible products from the forest so forest become a rich source of food which is generally not documented and which generally is not captured in various development approaches so that has been our approach that how to we emphasize the focus on uncultivated food regeneration of forest or forest management that you spoke about is not only about growing timber products or fuel but it also means managing the whole forest in such a way that it helps in the nutrition and providing food for the tribal communities especially it's very very helpful during the monsoon period when the food basket is a little bit scarce so it it forms a really lifeline for the tribal communities in this context it's very relevant to highlight on the forest rights that whatever i have observed in raigada district there needs to be a lot more emphasis is on the implementation of forest rights act especially community forest rights because in many places the claim process is still ongoing and the communities they do not have properly recognized so that is how i link it with the ecology and community led management of forest so that can be a way out to not only conserving nature and forest but also linking it with the livelihood and ownership rights of tribal communities so that is one way how we can address both the ecological and economic goals of communities thank you for addressing the forest rights act as well and i think that's another very pertinent topic that we could have a entirely separate conversation about but now i also want to talk to you about food sovereignty and how significant it is to conserve indigenous seed varieties which are nearing extinction so how are these indigenous seeds better for climate resilience and they are also nutritionally more dense than hybrid varieties and economically more practical and accessible to adivasi communities so how can we conserve these seeds through initiatives such as seed banks i would take this as a food system seed form a very critical element of it in the whole food production and consumption cycle so i would say the modern approach which was promoted in the early 90s was designed on consolidation and concentration they picked up few varieties which can be promoted at scale but in that approach the thousands and thousands of varieties 
which were already existing and which had so many different characteristics they gradually got lost so that is what we have been trying here in also in koraput we have a unique project in koraput where we have identified near extinct paddy varieties which are again being revived and redistributed and regenerated among communities so our approach has been to not a centralized approach but a decentralized approach where we create seed banks within communities and we encourage exchange of seeds within communities so that's how the different communities come together in periodic intervals and to learn about the various seeds that they themselves have been growing and conserving in that process they also have a system of exchange now seeds so that's how it gets regenerated and redistributed so that is one approach but of course in order to have germplasm or to conserve for further research i think the government or scientific community has to step in to not only understand the different qualities and varieties qualities of the different indigenous varieties but also to document and conserve the germplasm that is out there so in our way we have been promoting these seed banks community seed banks and also seed exchange programs that help to transmit the various indigenous varieties that's a very interesting concept of community seed banks which really help these communities remain self sufficient and reduce their dependence on external factors and agents such as government agents now just to come back to the work at living farms i want to talk about your nutrition garden initiatives what has been the community's response to these initiatives especially the women of these communities since they are the ones who tend to these gardens primarily and how are these gardens effective in ensuring food security and dietary diversity and finally what are the kind of capital or labor inputs that these gardens require the community garden nutrition garden actually it's nothing new it's actually a prevalent practice uh, among the communities they have been growing naturally or in their backyard different kinds of vegetables so we learned from them only and tried to put it into a package which was used as a base for replication in other districts and places gradually this grew into a program which was adopted by the government of orissa called as mo pokari bagicha which was implemented throughout the state so that's how the nutri garden aspect was designed it was designed such that it will cater to family their daily vegetable requirements and every day they will get minimum 3 to 4 varieties of vegetables from the garden that's how this makes the diet improves the dietary diversity and also provides vegetables to the plate in a recent survey we have found that of all the families that who had adopted a vegetable garden more than 80% had a dietary diversity score of 5 plus so that's a very encouraging finding which shows that kind of approach definitely contributes to improve the nutrition diversity in this program there were two three different types of model which depending on the availability of land and other resources the families they were encouraged to develop nutrition garden and even the landless households which did not have enough land they also encouraged to go for the sack model where in used sacks 
cement bags basically they can also grow different kinds of vegetables and use it in their diet it has been widely accepted by women though who are basically the caregivers and they have really understood significance of dietary diversity not only for the children but also for themselves so that had a significant impact on dietary diversity and the nutritional aspects of the family as we near the end of today's conversation i want to spend some time discussing two very pressing challenges for adivasi communities the first one is with regards to government policies state policies have forcefully evicted adivasis from their own lands for forest conservation or development projects and at the same time government food programs such as the pds replaces indigenous foods such as millets with rice and wheat so has the government's misinformed or negligent approach to tribal well-being impacted the on-ground work carried out by organizations such as living farms and how do you engage with state actors in the course of your work so i would say how do we measure well-being if even after 70 years of independence there are many villages in and around raigada damal where villages they do not have round the year road communication so basically in the monsoon season they are totally cut off and many villages they do not have electricity connection internet connectivity even mobile network schools are not available and the basic healthcare is not available so for even ailments they have to trek 4 5 kilometers in difficult terrain to get the basic healthcare so there is definitely need for and scope for improvement in these areas especially in the areas that we work in there are many villages in kasipur uh, godari chandrapur where these facilities are lacking and if we talk about the pds or the educational system i would touch upon because these are two very close aspects which we are working on like the pds it's more a centralized approach to address food distribution and food scarcity so it's a distribution model and helps hence it may not be designed to cater to the local context and the dietary requirements of the adivasi communities who more or less their diet is based on millets and ragi which definitely is not adequately incorporated in the pds which is a centralized distribution approach same approach goes for uh, the educational system that we profess like we have one type of system which says that all the children will go into the residential schools or schools where the normal curriculum is maintained however in that process we often forget or often ignore the traditional wisdom which the adivasi communities are so rich in so how do the children they learn about their traditional wisdom and approaches if we only focus on one type of learning so that's where the students get confused and get drawn away from their culture from their rich way of life so the, these are the some of the aspects which i think needs policy concern and policy dialogue it's not a one way process i think there has to be lot and lot more dialogue and discussion among the various authorities to come up with a better model which not only recognizes but also helps the children and the future generations adopt to their own culture 
it's so important to not have this one size fits all solution towards say nutrition or education programs because then implementing that in these regions could lead to this kind of dissonance between traditional knowledge systems and more mainstream systems the second challenge that i want to touch upon is climate change adivasis who primarily coexist with and depend on their environment are also the most vulnerable to food insecurity due to natural disasters and climate change in odisha what has been the impact of cyclones and unseasonal rains on the forest derived livelihoods of the cones and how can we improve their climate resilience in the geographies that we work in of course they are not very much affected by cyclones but definitely the unseasonal rain and the delayed rain that is creating a havoc in their way of life for example this year because of the delayed rain one is it came very late to when the rain started it continued for 2 3 weeks at a stretch so there was no break so that disrupted the total cropping cycle so now i get reports that a lot of varieties and could not be sown at all even if they have sown they are pretty sure that they are not going to get any kind of return so these changes in weather pattern and rainfall pattern is creating lot of havoc in the life cycle and the cropping cycle because of these unseasonal rains and lot of varieties like suan is a small millet which is a very nutritive and a highly sought after small millet so nowadays we are not getting lot of suan because on one they say that because of delayed rains they are not able to sow and because of that the seed bank the number of farmers who had the suan seeds has come down drastically since only a few people are having the seeds they are not able to grow it because when they say that if only a few farmers sow the seed then during the ripening stage it will be susceptible to bird attack so the produce will be much less it's a complex situation where because of climatic changes the traditional varieties and many factors they are getting lost of course there also are some examples of climate resilience for example if there is delayed in sometimes they also have some varieties which can be grown to cater to the changing cropping pattern but then it also requires that much quantity of seeds has to be available so again it becomes a cycle they have to think about replicating those seeds and then preparing for the future so these seeds not only localized action but also concerted action over a region like communities helping each other and sharing so these how to deal with the changing climatic patterns there is also a concern we have been having this dialogue among communities spread across three four blocks where they have been raising these issues but still it needs a lot of concerted effort and lot of joint action to tide through this situation whatever we have thought about and we are trying to work in our limited way is through promoting community seed banks and into conservation and propagation of these indigenous varieties and the climate resistant varieties but at the same time at a higher level there has to be concerted effort to conserve the germplasm and have more kind of replication models where more like uh, seed is adequately available when such climatic factors come up
As final thought, Sibabrata, how do you envision the future of indigenous food systems in India? And what would be one or two recommendations, either at the policy level or on the ground, that could help indigenous communities and their sustainable practices gain widespread recognition? Yes, it's a very interesting approach or thought, which we have tried to do in our small way. One is, though the indigenous communities, they have been growing their own food and trying to be sustainable and self-reliant. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the urban consumers, they also need food. It's not that only the local communities, they produce food for their own consumption only. So there has to be an approach of connecting the consumer with the producers. So in our small way, what we have done is in Isamkatak, we have a local consumer market where the producers and consumers, they come together every week and they exchange whatever food that is produced. But this has to grow organically. So that way, the food is, the approach that you said is to more go for localized food production than for centralized mass production. So I think that's the most sustainable approach which can be done to address our food system challenges. The other thing I think which we should be focusing on is re-educating the scientific community and the policymakers and also the education fraternity. Because whatever we have learned all these years has been that you grow high-yielding varieties, you throw chemical fertilizers, you use pesticides, and we will have the answer to our food problem. But actually, there is much more to learn and understand about the local food system, which needs a complete overhaul if we want to address not only the food challenges, but also the climatic challenges that that are looming over us.